Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Duff Differently. I'm William Friedman, and today we're studying Ketubot 47. Yesterday's Duff introduced a new Mishnah on the central topic of this chapter. What are a father's and a husband's rights and responsibilities vis-a-vis his daughter and wife, respectively? Among the responsibilities of a husband is material support of the wife, what the Mishnah calls mizonot, sustenance. We might be familiar with that word from the blessing uh, that that is said after eating grain-based products that are not bread, who created different kinds of sustaining foods. Um, so the Mishnah calls mizonot any, any economic support that the husband renders to the wife, and the husband is obligated to materially support the wife. Today's daf delves into this material in depth, raising the issues of economic support obligations within marriage, as well as other marital responsibilities. We'll start on 47b, in the top part of the daf, with a piska. Piska is just a fancy word that means a quotation from the Mishnah that we're then going to talk about. So the piska is chayab b'miznoteha, that the husband is obligated to materially support his wife. Tanu Rabbanan, we have a baraita. Our sages taught, so they, the sages, established her mizonot, her support, in place of ma'asayadeha, literally her handiwork, the work of her hands, and her burial in place of her ketubah, in place of the ketubah, well, normally it would be the ketubah payment, but here actually it means the inherited monies. We'll talk about that in a sec. Therefore, the husband is allowed to eat the fruit. And eating the fruit means that any property that the woman brings into the marriage will revert to her at the end of the marriage if the husband dies or if he divorces her. But during the lifetime of the marriage, the husband is allowed to actually consume the whatever the, let's say, the field produces, right? That's the that's the literal part of this metaphor, right? Um, and by the way, this ochel perot is uh, the fancy word, it's often translated in early 20th century translations of the Mishnah and the Gemara, um, yusufrakt. Um, yusufrakt is a weird word that we may o- that we only know because we studied Jewish texts like this, um, but actually it's got in it frakt, um, which you may know from fructose, right? The sweetness um, that come the the sweetness provided by fruit. So fruct is just the Latin for fruit. So it's a decent decent word actually, usufrakt, which means use of the fruit, right? Which is basically a literal Latin translation of ochel perot. Okay, so what's going on in this Brighta? The Brighta is setting up the marital economic mutuality. The husband pays to support his wife, and that is tied to her contributing economically to the marriage. It's a very non-romantic view of marriage, but actually, let's be honest about it, we're all grown-ups, right, that marriage is not just about love and commitment. Um, It is about that as well, but it's also about 
economics. It's about supporting each other. Um, and, uh, you know, that's all, all the studies and the contemporary work that's being done to encourage marriage in quote-unquote marriage-poor communities um, is actually about economics. Um, it's about actually trying to help people get ahead um, by having a mut an economically mutually supportive relationship. So the obligation to pay for burial, right? So that was the obligation for support, right? Every day she does some uh, some work uh, on the loom, let's say. She makes garments, and they can be sold for money that she brings into the relationship. And the husband does whatever he does. Let's say he's a day laborer, right? So he brings in some he brings in some money, right? And she has the right to eat, right? To consume that money um, because she's also contributing economically. Now, what about the burial thing? So the husband's obligation to pay for the wife's burial is tied to the fact that if she predeceases him, right, she dies first, then he'll inherit her property. And during the life of the marriage, he's entitled to benefit from anything produced from that property, right? So when the link is set up that tightly, right, he buries her. Why? Because he'll get money that will pay for the burial and more, presumably. Um, and during the life of the marriage, he gets to consume the usufruct. But the Gemara is confused here, and we might be also. The Gemara says, excuse me, Peirut man dechar shmaihu. Who ever mentioned Peirut? One of my favorite Gemara phrases, man dechar Who mentioned it? Um, it's like something came out of nowhere. What are you talking about? So the Gemara asks, Peirut man dechar shmaihu, right? There was no, nothing set up in this brighta to lead, us to, to lead us to expect that the husband would actually be able to consume this usufruct. So the response is actually one of these very interesting Gemara phrases that asserts, basically, that there was something missing in this Breita. There was a defect in its transmission, um, and we're going to reread it. Uh, and that's always interesting, because in other places, they don't have a problem rereading things uh, without claiming that the text, in fact, was defective. Um, but here, they seem to want to claim the text is defective, maybe because they're adding an entire clause to the Breita. In any case, there's something lacking. There's a lacuna. There's another fancy word for you. There's a lacuna in the mish in the Breita, and here's how it should be read or taught. So the first clause stays the same. They established her support in place of her handiwork. Now here's the added thing, right? The fact that the husband is obligated to redeem her. Um, parak here is the Aramaic that's being sort of smuggled into a Hebrew language breita, um, right? You may know it from uh, from the Saturday morning prayers, Yakum Purkan, right? May the Redeemer arise, um, or the redeemed time, the redemption. In any case, parak is just the Aramaic that means to redeem or be redeemed. Um, so the husband is obligated if she's captured by bandits, um, which I think we talked about in the third in the third chapter of Ketubot somewhere um, that the rabbis are very concerned about this. Maybe it was happening. Who knows? Um, uh, that Pirkona, his obligation to redeem her, right, to pay off the ransom, to rescue her from her captors, Tachat Peirot, that comes in place of the fact that whatever property she's bringing into the marriage, he's eating, right? He's uh, he's gets to, to make use of it, right? And so that money sort of covers whatever his costs will be of redeeming her from her captors. Um, and uh, we'll talk about this in, in just a little bit. Um, and then it has the same last clause, right? The burial is in place of the fact that uh, the fact that he would get the property, and therefore the husband can eat the payrot. Okay, great. So that works, except for one problem. My lefichach, says the Gemara, what is this therefore? 
what does the therefore have to do with anything? And the, actually what the question is, is the therefore doesn't quite work because maybe it's not a logical consequence that the husband should be able to eat the perot. And recall that in this new version of the Brita, the perot, the usufruct, right, is there to guarantee the, or to compensate the husband for the fact that he'll have to redeem her if she's taken captive. And the Gemara offers another possibility. Mahu tatema, what might you have said? What's what's a different possible solution? So this is very I find this line to be very, very interesting. We have to parse it first. So Michal lo Nachlinhu, like maybe he shouldn't be allowed to eat it, right? Let's not feed it to him. Rather, Anuche Nanchinhu, let's put it in a savings account. That's <laughs> basically what it says. Noach Nanchinhu is just from that root nach which means to leave aside, right? So stick it in a savings account, right? In other words, she, let's say, brought in a field to the marriage, and it produces a certain amount of money every year. So instead of allowing the husband to just willy-nilly use that money for whatever he wants, right, and then hope that maybe he'll redeem her, right, instead, why don't we put it in a savings account, and then, um, and then just use that money to redeem her, right? Basically, she would be paying for her own redemption. Um... So it says, In that case, actually, he would not, right? He would not, uh, he would be prevented and would not redeem her. Um, why? Right? Why is that? Why is it that uh, he would be prevented and not redeem her? Right? After all, if there's no savings account, because all the usufruct has been used up, maybe the husband wouldn't redeem her. Right? In other words, if there's a savings account, he'll do the calculation. Well, this field has earned me $1,000. The captors want $2,000. All right, forget about it. <laughs> right? I mean, it's sort of cold-hearted, but, like, economics are a real force in life. So that's why the Gemara says, It rather teaches us that our system is better, where the husband gets to use it up. Why? Right? Because maybe... Um, it's funny, it says sometimes here, right, Zimnin, sometimes, that the money actually that comes from the field wouldn't cover the cost of her redemption, but because the husband has been eating it, right, using it, um, spending it, um, he won't know, actually. He won't be able to do the calculation, right, or he won't have kept ledgers, or he's not going to look in the ledger or whatever. Um, and he'll just redeem her from his own resources. So, while both systems have merits, the Gemara prefers the one that it thinks will benefit more women. Now the Gemara goes to a different challenge, and it says, Actually, we should flip them, and what it means by flip them is we should flip the correspondences in the Baraita. Um, so what correspondences should we flip? Well, we have to look to Rashi here. Rashi helpfully points out that um, what, what should be flipped is that the daily sustenance, the mizonot, should be actually correspond to the usufruct, right, the money from the property she brings into the marriage, and that the responsibility of redemption, right, should correspond to the resources that she generates for the relationship, right? That's the way the tit-for-tat should work. And Rashi points out here that the nafkaminos, which is the practical difference, is that in these circumstances, women would not be able to decline receiving support in favor of keeping their own wages. Now, that's a really, really important sugya. Um, that sugya will come up on 58a. Um, but actually, the idea that a woman can say, actually, you know what? No thanks. I don't want your money. I'm going to keep the money that I make. And we'll have an economically independent marriage. 
where it's still a marriage, we're still living together, we still have obligations to each other, but monetarily, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Um, and that's actually a key provision in contemporary times to establish an economically egalitarian relationship, which, as I just mentioned, is envisioned and permitted by the Talmud. In any case, let's go back to this, right? So the Gemara has raised a challenge that we should flip the correspondences, and it needs a response. Amar Abaye, Tiknu Matsui la Matsui, Vishainu Matsui la Shainu Matsui. So they established the common for the common and the uncommon for the uncommon. In other words, what's the point? The point is that most women can do some form of work and all women need to eat. So therefore, the husband bringing in the money, the mazonot, right, that's common, in fact, universal, and therefore, corresponding to that should be what the vast majority of women can do, which is contribute economically to the relationship. As opposed to captivity, which is rare, fortunately, and also women being rich enough to, have bring, to bring into the marriage property that can produce money Right, independent of having to work it, or, or her, you know, just it's going on its of its own accord. Right, that is also quite rare. So you do the rare, the common for the common, and the rare for the rare. And I just want to point out here something interesting, which is, um, in fact, it makes sense in another plane, which is the kind of woman who is going to be subject to captivity is probably going to be a richer woman because they can exact a larger ransom. Right, that's the way a, at least a rational actor um, would work here. Um, and therefore, it actually makes sense also that richer women who are more susceptible to captivity right, will have um, probably property uh, that would um, help cover, at least in the husband's mind, the ransom costs. Anyway, um, so the Gemara actually uses this to discuss marital obligations more broadly. Um, and it's very, very rich. Um, I'll read through it, I'll translate it, and I'll just point out a couple of things. Um, and uh, this is actually worthy of a lot of a lot of study, which uh, we can't can't give it its full due. In any case, we're at the bottom of 47b here. Amar Rava. So Rava uses this opportunity to say, Hi, Tana Savar Mizonat Midoraita. So this Tana of this Baraita thinks that Mizonot is actually a biblical level obligation. And then it brings a Braita, which is going to actually show that there's a machloket about that. There's a dispute. So, Ditanya, as we learned in a Braita, She'erah elu mizonot, v'chein huomer v'asher achalu she'er ami. So this is actually, we need to know the Pasuk for this. The Pasuk for this is She'erah ketutava onata lo yigara. This is from Exodus chapter 21, Parshat Mishpatim, in which it's talking about... Uh, a complicated case, but basically, if you have a wife and you take a second wife, um, you obviously being male here, um, you can't that that man can't reduce the original wife's share um, ksut veona. So the bright is trying to figure out what's share ksut veona. So share is understood to refer to food, so a biblical obligation to provide food, um, and they attach that to another verse for share achalu share ami, and those who consumed right ate the share of my people. So that's where they get that mizonot from. Ksuta, ksut means clothing, meant clothing in the Torah, means clothing for the rabbis. So it says kamashma'o, simple, plain meaning of that word. He's obligated to buy her clothes. Onatah, zo onah Torah. So onatah is a weird word that means, and the Brita understands it to me, this is the onah that is spoken about in the Torah. Um, when 
Jacob flees Lavan's house with his two daughters, and Lavan catches up to him and says, all right, all right, you can go, finally, um, but don't you dare oppress my daughters, and that is understood by the rabbis to refer to sexual obligations. In other words, Jacob shouldn't take extra wives, um, which would reduce his sexual obligations to his wife. And that's where they get Mizonot, um, Ksut, and Ona. Support, clothing, and sexual obligations. Um, so I think we'll stop there. Uh, and uh, there's a lot more in this Brayta. There are other positions that um, read the read that verse differently from uh, Parshat Mishpatim. And then at the very top of 48a, it's going to go into a discussion actually of sexual obligations, which is fascinating. Um, and maybe we'll just mention them tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.